10,000 Reasons, one of my favorite worship songs. Such a beautiful, awesome worship song. I want to, we're going to be going to Genesis chapter 7 here in a moment, chapter 7. But there's a passage that God kind of laid on my heart as we were, or just a verse, don't get worried, uh, as we were singing that song. It's Romans 121. Romans chapter 1 is about God's general revelation, his natural law. God gives, lays on our heart a natural law so that everyone has a type of conscience, a type of natural law of right and wrong. I was running this morning, and I look up, and it's a beautiful warm morning, and I see geese or some type of bird. <laughs> I think they were geese flying in a V formation. How do they know how to do that? Isn't it, it just amazing how God has pre-programmed these common things, how to work, how to function? And he's done that with us, a natural law, God's common grace, general revelation, we'll call it. And in Romans 1, Paul writes about that. And in verse 21, he says, For although they knew God, they did not glorify him as, as God or give him thanks. You see that? Notice that little word, or give him thanks. That's Romans 1.21 if you want to look it up later or now. For although they knew God, how'd they know God? This isn't talking about Christians who really knew God. It's talking about people who know of God through God's general revelation, his common grace that he's given every human being this side of eternity in the world some type of common knowledge about him. Lee Strobel, in his book, The Case for Faith, is interviewing somebody, and they're talking about, you know, um, uh, um, he's talking to people, I think, who were non-believers, and they said, one of them said something like, well, if there was a God, why wouldn't he just write it on the sky? He has. You have a look at the stars in the sky. You know, birds navigate by the stars, and even when they're kept in captivity, if they are released, they know how to navigate by the stars. This is saying about humans, for all they, they knew God... They knew about God through God's common grace, his general revelation, his natural law. They did not glorify him as God or give him thanks. Give thanks. You know, when we stop giving thanks, we start to forget God. We start to forget our place and we start to go down a slippery slope. Thankfulness, 10,000 reasons. I'd encourage you if you don't, as start some of your um, devotion practices, your daily devotions, um, or long car rides, a little bit of both. Think about what you're thankful for. Sing that song. I bet we could all find 10,000 reasons and more to be thankful. Uh, that passage says, for although they knew God, they did not glorify him as God or give thanks, but they became futile in their thoughts and their senseless hearts were darkened. We don't wanna forget God. We don't wanna go there. We don't want to go there at all. Oftentimes, we're very judgmental of God when the bad things happen. We're going to come back to that in a minute. We would say things, right, like, why do bad things happen to good people? And Jesus was asked something about that in Luke 13. You can look it up later. Call me if you want to talk about it. 
And Jesus says, unless you all repent, you'll be judged. The real question is, why don't bad things happen all the time to everyone? We all need a savior. And why aren't we giving God credit for all those good things that are going on? As a Psalm says, he makes the sun rise on the just and the unjust. He makes our many, just so many, just common things that we don't notice. I was thinking as I was praying with my kids the other day, and I shared this with my class at Malone, you know, that we pray for safety or we pray for certain things. Do you realize God in his providence could make something happen? You leave your house and you realize, you get to your car and you realize, I forgot my phone or I forgot my wallet or I forgot my computer. I forgot my code. I forgot something. And now I'm going to be late to my appointment. For all you know, God made you forget that. Because if you would have left right on time, you would have collided with another car at another intersection. If you're going on a trip down to Florida and you pray to God for help and support, God can orchestrate when each individual car leaves their home that you pass and make it so that that car that would leave a moment earlier, a moment later, it would be an accident. But no, not going to happen because of God's providence. He is in control. Do you realize how many near, I'm just amazed when I drive on the interstate or anywhere for that matter, especially down 224, how many accidents don't happen. You're driving right down, the, right down the road at 70 whatever miles per hour with, you know, inches or feet in between you and the other vehicles. And by God's grace, things work out. How many times we don't fall? How many things don't work out in, you know, in life? You ever realize how perfect our earth is placed in our solar system? How perfect our solar system is placed within the Milky Way? Everything is just perfect for life. It's amazing. We serve an amazing God, and he deserves worship and praise. And in that manner, I don't know about you, but I'm always amazed by the power of water. I like to watch you know, the footage of a, of a hurricane on the water. Don't, don't want to see people get hurt. I just like to see the waves and things like that. But not when people are in the way. I'm not saying that. I'm not like that, okay? I like to see special effects in movies. Uh, I grew up in Dayton, and we had the Five River Metro Parks. The Five River Metro Parks. Uh, Don would know of them. Because in 1913, they had a, ma- a major flood. And after that flood, they built five dams. And I lived right near what was called the Inglewood Dam. My parents would say that when I was a little boy, I would say, can we go to the dam park today? I was talking about the dam, not the cursed park, okay? And it was the park, okay? And they had these floodplains within for the mighty Stillwater River, which is about the size of the Mahoning River, maybe a little bit bigger. And in Dayton, the Stillwater joins the Miami and joins the Mad. And the Mad is this little creek, okay? And they join and they become the Great Miami and go down south. But, but the, right around the, the, these parks, they had these areas where it would intentionally flood. And so two or so roads would close down when there becomes all this rain in the spring, the snow melts, and we would go down a certain road and the gates would be up and you can't go there because that area, Martindale Road and, New, and Springfield Road, I think it was called, or something like that, it flooded intentionally. And then the water would go down and eventually they opened the gates. And I just loved driving down to the floodgates, right where the gates are. And looking at the water. I mean, it's amazing. This little river becomes a giant lake. And then when the water goes down 
and the, and the gates open, you see all the mud, you see the trees sideways, you see all that stuff because the mighty power of water. But sometimes the mighty power of water is completely dis, uh, destructive. My dad's side of the family comes from Johnstown, Pennsylvania, Johnstown. In the 1880s, if you wanted a good life with a good job, you moved to Johnstown, Pennsylvania. The Pennsylvania Main Line Canal came through the town. So that brought jobs. So did the Pennsylvania Railroad and the Cambria Ironworks. Or maybe it's Cambria. You can correct me later. Ironworks. Families were moving in from Wales, from Germany. Uh, Not to mention there are beautiful mountains covered with forest all around town. And right through the town runs the Canama River. In fact, the area of Johnstown, PA is so beautiful, the country's richest people, Andrew Carnegie and Andrew Mellon, will come out from Pittsburgh to hunt and fish at a private club club up above town. And at that place, there was an old earth dam which had been modified to make a fishing lake for them. On May 30th, 1889, a huge rainstorm came through and dropped six to 10 inches of rain. Now think about that. Six to 10 inches of rain on one day, May 30th, 1889. That in and of itself is quite a big deal. Now what history tells us is they built the dam, but one of these um, elite, very wealthy people, Andrew Carnegie or one of his buddies, couldn't get his carriage over the dam. So they changed it. They modified it. They made exceptions. I think they lowered it a little bit to make it fit. And that became destructive in what's about to happen. Despite the weather, the 6 to 10 inches of rain, the next day, the day after that rain, the town lined up along Main Street for the Memorial Day Parade. The Methodist pastor, H.L. Chapman, said, The morning was delightful. The city was in its gayest mood with flags, banners, and flowers everywhere. The streets were more crowded than we had ever seen before. And then the old dam, miles above town, collapsed, releasing almost 4 billion gallons of water. 4 billion gallons of water. When that wall of water and debris hit Johnstown, which was 57 minutes later, it was 60 feet high and traveling at 40 miles an hour. People tried to escape by running toward high ground, but over 2,000 of the 30,000 people in town died. I don't know how anybody lived uh, through that. There's a book, which this is partially coming from, called The Johnstown Flood by David McAuliffe that gets into detail about it. Some bodies were found as far away as Cincinnati, Ohio. And some were not discovered until 20 years later. The Johnstown flood remains one of the greatest tragedies in American history, behind only the Galveston hurricane and the 9-11 terrorist attacks. And in every one of these cases, get this, life was fine until it wasn't. They all thought things were fine. Till it wasn't. In a moment, in a way that was unexpected and most people were not prepared for, something cataclysmic occurred and people were swept away. Floods are scary. The force of water is amazing. Today we talk about another flood and we've got maybe one or two more sermons on the flood. 
We've been preaching through Genesis chapters 1 through 11. And my point has been to show the significance of Genesis to the rest of the Bible. Because many times we're compromising these chapters of the Bible. We're saying they don't matter, you know, anymore. They were, they didn't know any better. They're just myths and things like that. But my purpose has been to show these chapters are significant to the rest of the Bible. These themes, these ideas even show up in the New Testament as I'll show you in a little bit. My great idea today is the significance of Genesis. We see the worldwide flood of judgment. In God's grace, saving Noah and his family. God's grace, saving Noah and his family. Now, maybe you've heard, I've used that, a similar theme with this. It, it's coming up a little bit repeatedly because God did not have to save anyone. You ever think about that? God doesn't have to do anything. If you have kids or grandkids, have you ever heard them say things like, mommy, you have to do this, or daddy, you have to do this. This is mine. You're not allowed to take that away. No, everything you have, kid, belongs to me. You know, <laughs> they don't have to do, we don't have to do anything. God does not have to do anything. And it's emphasized time and time again, because we're in a day and age where we need it reminded to us, God's in charge. He's sovereign. He's in control. And his scriptures do teach us of his love and of his grace and of his mercy, but also of his purity, of his holiness, of his greatness, which means his judgment. We say things today like, well, if I don't believe in hell, that means it doesn't exist. That's not logical. I don't believe in calories, but they exist. And you can't, that doesn't work. I don't believe in God's judgment, so it doesn't exist, no. Listen, God's holiness is like gravity. God is holy. Gravity is part of creation. Whenever you fall, fall, you you don't say, I can't believe gravity. I'm not gonna believe in gravity again because it just made me hit the ground. No, gravity exists. It's part of creation. God's holiness is part of who he is. Not part of creation because there's a distinction there, but part of who he is. And we violate the whole, when we violate God's holiness, it's like gravity. There's a consequence. We've all violated gravity, right? We don't learn to walk without violating gravity because you fall and things like that. And God is holy. He's pure. He's righteous. And we see as the people were just increasingly getting wicked and living very long. And God intervened. Yet, God generally provides a remnant. He provides a remnant. And right here, he provides. He saves Noah and his family. We're gonna see right here in just a few moments is Noah trusted the Lord. He really trusted the Lord. And we also see that God intervened to prevent the escalating depravity of humanity. That's looking at it differently, isn't it? God intervened to prevent the escalating depravity of humanity. There's a New York Times article last week. It was an op-ed. It made a lot of news because it said something to the effect of uh, this Easter season, uh, this Passover, I think it was Passover he was focusing on because Passover and Resurrection Weekend came along at the same time. This Passover season, let's forget God. It was written by a guy who grew up with the strictest type of Judaism. He was saying, just forget God. And I was reading it and thinking, when somebody writes that, does that mean they're forgetting their place? 
We say things, are we forgetting our place? We're like the toddler or the four-year-old saying, Mommy, you have to do this for me. We've got to remember our place. God intervened to stop the escalating depravity of humanity. God saved Noah and his family. Noah trusted the Lord. So let's look at this. Let's put it in context. We're going to look at Genesis 7, verse 11. So turn there in your Bible if you're not there yet. We're going to start there in a little minute. But in verses 1 through 10, I'm going to put it in context. In verses 1 through 10, we see the occupants of the ark. Noah, his wife, their sons and their wives, uh, plus a pair of all animals and seven pairs of clean animals. Now, as has probably been stated, or maybe you know, uh, you know, Noah did not have to bring all the animals that we have today onto the ark. He didn't have to do that. He would have got, first of all, God led the appropriate, the, prop, the animals needed. God led those animals to Noah. Noah did not have to go find them. Noah did not have to chase down, you know, possums and skunks and things like that. He didn't have to say, come on, come, you know, God told me to bring you, but I can't catch you. No, they came to Noah, okay? God, they came to Noah, and he only needed certain types of these animals, and I believe based off those types, they could populate, repopulate the earth and you know, have different types of species and all that type of stuff, okay? So they're on the ark. They enter the ark because of the flood. In verse 10, Genesis 7, 10, it says that after seven days, the flood of water came upon the earth. So they enter the ark, and then after seven days, the flood of water came upon the earth. Verse 11 is a time marker and gives extra detail. Read verse 11. Genesis 7, 11, in the 600th year of Noah's life, in the second month, on the 17th day of the month, on that day, all the mountains of the great deep burst forth and the windows of the heavens were opened. It's a time mark. It's showing time. And that's very, very important to show that this was a real event. But look how it says it. All the fountains of the great deep burst open and the floodgates of the sky were opened. Water came from underground and the sky. The Hebrew term tehom, which means deep here, refers to the watery deep, the salty ocean, especially the primeval ocean that surrounded and underlies the sky. And so water is coming from the deep. Water came from two different sources, one below and one above. Exactly what is meant by all the sources of the vast watery depths is unknown. The phrase appears to refer to a massive outflow of pressurized water from underground sources that burst out of the ground with devastating effect. No known phenomenon in nature today corresponds to this description. Something happened cataclysmic. A peculiar feature of the flood narrative is, though, is a number of detailed chronological notices. We see a detailed chronological note here. We see it again in Genesis chapter 8, verses 4 to 5, and Genesis 8, 13 through 14. By pinpointing the exact date of the flood within Noah's life, the text underlines that it was a real event. All the fountains of the great deep burst forth, and the windows of the heavens were open, verse 11. This is powerful imagery, and it's used here to capture the intensity of the flood. From below and above, water poured out to cover the land. Rain fell continuously for 40 days and 40 nights. There's evidence of different things that have happened in history, such as 
um, geological events as well as asteroids hitting the earth. I think uh, a lot of maybe that cataclysmic event happened here. Maybe several asteroids that hit the earth at the same time. Of course, it's all God's sovereignty, all God's providence that come alongside rain. Some believe that earth used to have a canopy of water around it, and that's possible, and that water collapsed on the earth at this point. But also, it seems to me that the Certain volcanoes erupted and the continental drift happened. Many cataclysmic events were happening. And verse 12 says, and rain fell upon the earth 40 days and 40 nights. The rain fell 40 days and 40 nights. And that's stating what God had planned. In verse 4, God has said that would happen. In Genesis 7, verses 13 through 16, the text once again shares the occupants of the ark. Noah, his wife, their three sons and their wives, plus a pair of all animals, seven pairs of clean animals. Then verse 16 says, And those that entered the ark, male and female of all flesh, they went in as God had commanded um, him, and the Lord shut him in. This is interesting. They entered the ark as God commanded them, and the Lord closed the door. The Lord closed the door. The use of the personal name Lord right here is Yahweh. And it underscores, it underscores God's special relationship with Noah. The author gave no details to explain how God performed the supernatural act of shutting Noah in. This divine act highlights the truth found elsewhere in the Bible. That salvation belongs to the Lord. Look at Jonah 2.9. You notice that? Salvation belongs to the Lord today. Salvation belonged to the Lord then. Salvation always belongs to the Lord. And we see that right there. The Lord tells them what to do. They obey. The Lord shut the door. Verses 7 through 24, we see the ordeal outside the ark. The underground waters burst forth. Torrential rain falls from heaven for 40 days, covering the highest mountains and drowning all human animal life. Look at verses 17 through 24. I'm going to read them now. Then the flood came upon the earth for 40 days. And the water increased and lifted up the ark so that it rose above the earth. The water prevailed. Notice that word prevailed. That's the first time we're going to see it, but we're going to see it four times in this passage. The water prevailed and increased greatly upon the earth. And the ark floated on the surface of the water. The water prevailed. That's the second time. More and more upon the earth so that all the high mountains everywhere under the heavens were covered. That's giving some extra details. All the high mountains everywhere under the, mount, under, under the heavens were covered. All the high mountains were covered. The water prevailed, third time that term, 15 cubits higher, and the mountains were covered. All flesh that moved on the earth perished, birds and cattle and beasts, and every swarming thing that swarms upon the earth and all mankind. Of all that was on the dry land, all in whose nostrils were, was the breath of the spirit of life died. Thus... He, that's God, blotted out every living thing that was upon the face of the land, from man to animals to creeping things and to birds of the sky, and they were blotted out from the earth. And only Noah was left together. And only Noah was left together with those that were with him in the ark. The water prevailed, fourth use of that term, upon the earth 150 days. The water came upon the earth, again, 40 days, 40 nights, constant rain and water from under the earth. The water lifts the ark up. The ark rose above the earth. And that's picturesque language, isn't it? You can paint a picture in your head, the ark floating, you know, on the, or above the water. Um, verse 18, 
builds on this. The water prevailed, which usually has a meaning of being prevalent, but also in force. That word prevailed has the idea of being prevalent, but also in force. Prevail is used four times in this passage. The water stayed on the earth 150 days. The Hebrew word translated as prevail in the ESV and the NASB is the word gabar, which means be strong and mighty. The, the water prevailed. It was strong and mighty over the earth. This suggests that the waters were stronger than the earth. The earth and everything in it were no match for the return of the chaotic deep. Verse 19, all the high mountains were covered everywhere. That equals about 22 and a half feet, 22 and a half feet. Throughout, through the use of expanded restatement, the author brings a detailed account of the flood's destruction to a climax. Verses 21 through 23 go to detail to show the results. Verse 22 all whose nostrils had the spirit of life died. This seems to suggest that all that breathed oxygen died. I want to park right there just for another second. We read that and depending on our nature, whether we're more emotional or more analytical, we can easily start to judge God. And that's why I keep repeating this idea. Nobody who is innocent died in the flood because no one's innocent. Now, certainly I think that there were children who would have died in the flood who God was actually saving them from the future destruction of the gross immorality going on. It might've been, there might've been children that died in the flood. If they didn't die in the flood, they would have become child sacrifices because we know in the Canaanite culture, there was rampant child sacrificing that also included pedophilia acts and temple prostitution and many other things. I think God did rescue a lot of people during that time, but no one's innocent. And for all we know, there likely could have been some people who might have been not as severely immoral as the others, and God might have made it so they died a very painless death. But, you know, I was talking to a student about this, a student from Germany, who um, hopefully God has impacted his faith in the last few months. But whether God takes us today in some tragic event, tsunami, an earthquake, a tornado, earth through cancer 40 years from now. We are still dying for the same reason. We all die for the same reason. It all goes back to original sin. Sin brought death, spiritual death immediately and physical death later on. Further, God is the author of life and God is in charge of life. And no matter what, we all will face death. And that's why we all need to put our trust in Jesus as Lord and Savior. And based on what I've seen, and I think many of you as well, suffering, there's a lot of suffering in this life, isn't there? Cancer, Alzheimer's and dementia, mental illness, and many other things. There's a lot of suffering in this life. It's still there. And it all does go back to original sin. That's why we all need Jesus. And what I'm trying to say here is, yes, God took people in the flood. And what I want to make the case for, again, here in just a moment, God was intervening to stop, to prevent, I believe, some type of a Holocaust type of, uh, of, of thing going on. Things were so immoral, so bad, 
that he was intervening in that. And yes, he was taking life. But yes, he takes, God has taken life ever since then. And he will again until Jesus comes again and makes things right. And we have the new heaven and new earth. You see what I'm saying there? No matter what, God is still taking life. But he's still doing it as a response to sin. Verse 23, again, great detail to show the results. All died, only known as and, and those on the ark lived. Why did they live? Not because he was perfect, but because he, his patterns of life were following God. But there was a greater reason for Noah and his family to live. And that was to continue humanity and eventually to send Jesus as Savior through, Noah's, through, through the descendants of Noah. If God did not save Noah and his family, there would be no more humanity, no more Savior, no Jesus. Second Peter three five and Second uh, Peter two five and three six prefigures uh, connects the flood to the final judgment, which in the end pre- pre- presents uh, present heaven and earth and brings a new world. So in the end, Second Peter two five and three six connects the flood of Noah with the future judgment when God is going to destroy the earth. Peter says they're going to be destroyed with fire. In the New Testament, the flood is referenced by Jesus. Matthew 24, 38 through 39 is good. For as in those days, this is Jesus talking. For as in those days before the flood, they were eating and drinking, marrying and giving and giving in marriage until the day when Noah entered the ark. And they were unaware until the flood came and swept them all away. So will be the coming of the son of man. So Jesus is connecting the flood with the second coming of Christ. He's saying, They were eating, they were drinking, they were marrying, they were giving in marriage, they were living life. And they thought everything's okay, everything's fine. They're living how they are living. And they don't know, judgment's coming. It's the same thing today, it's the same thing until Jesus comes again. We have to be ready. Someday Jesus is gonna come again, like a a thief in the night. I wanna make some uh, more applications. God is faithful. You know, God said he would save Noah and his family, and guess what he did? He did. God preserved a remnant. We must praise God for his faithfulness to his creation. God intervened to prevent the escalating depravity of the world. Think about that. Again, too often we judge God for the flood. However, think about this. If the whole world was like the Nazis with the Holocaust, if the whole world was, you know, putting people in concentration camps and doing things like that, wouldn't we want someone to intervene? They did and people did and we would. If the whole world was like Stalin and what he was doing, you know, killing millions of people, wouldn't we want someone to intervene? They did and people did and we do want someone to intervene, right? If the whole world was like ISIS, wouldn't we want someone to intervene? Of course, God intervened with the gross immorality and sin that was going on. The world was really bad and God put a stop to it. In saving Noah's family, God provided a future for humanity. In saving Noah's family, God provided a way of salvation for humanity and the future through Jesus. We must have faith that the Lord knows what is best. Noah trusted the Lord, right? Noah went into the ark and the Lord closed the door. Noah trusted the Lord to close the ark. That's verse 16. Noah trusted the Lord to enter the ark, verses 13 through 16. We must trust the Lord following his written instructions in his word. We have more information from God than Noah did through the Bible. Do you realize that? And can we trust him to do what's right, to follow his ways, to love when it's difficult, to obey when it's difficult, to give grace when it's difficult, to give mercy when it's difficult, to share the gospel, to worship him? 
to trust him. We also must trust the Lord following the voice of the Holy Spirit. We must trust the Lord honoring his ways. We must trust the Lord with integrity, integrity, even when it's very difficult. We must trust the Lord with his call in our life. His call is revealed in his word. For example, you know what? God calls us to purity. I've heard Dr. Adelnick talk about talking to students at Moody Bible Institute. And the student would say, the student's not married. And the student would say, I don't have the gift of celibacy. And he would say, well, you do for now. <laughs> you know, you're not married. You have that gift for now. Are we willing to trust God's ways? And God calls us all to purity. God calls us all to integrity. God calls us all to loving others. God calls us all to sharing the gospel. God calls us all to commitment to the church above the different idols in our lives. Are we willing to trust him? God is just. And he will not let the guilty go unpunished. Exodus 34, 7. We must praise him for his forgiveness and recognize that our sin is against him first and foremost. We see God's grace with Noah. And we see God's grace saving Noah, saving us. Hurricane Katrina slammed into the Gulf Coast throughout the last week of August 2005, maybe many of you remember during that time. It destroyed buildings, flooding cities, and left millions of people homeless. However, the storm's most destructive consequences may have been the unleashing of human nature. While New Orleans law officials and National Guardsmen concentrated on rescuing survivors, hundreds of looters took to the streets in the days following Katrina's wrath. Initially, the looters targeted supermarkets and drugstores, focusing on food, medicine, and diapers. However, these seemingly innocent motives soon turned to greed. On historic Canal Street, dozens of looters ripped open the steel gates protecting clothing and jewelry stores. Many waded through the flooded streets with industrial-sized trash cans full of merchandise, which they floated on makeshift rafts. In Biloxi, Mississippi, people picked through casino slot machines for coins and ransacked other businesses. Frighteningly, many of the looters made off with weapons. New Orleans uh, Homeland Security Chief Terry Ebert said looters broke into stores all over town to steal guns. And the Times-Picayune newspaper reported that the gun section at a new Walmart in the Lower Guardian District was quickly cleaned out. The looting is out of control, said French Quarter Councilwoman Jackie Clarkson. We're using, we are using exhausted, scarce police to control looting when they should be used for search and rescue while we still have people on rooftops. Have we improved? Now we know God's word in Genesis 6 says it was really bad. And I can only imagine that it was probably worldwide worse than what we see today. But we are still sinners and we still need God's grace and we still need salvation. We always will until he comes again. I encourage you if you're here today and you've strayed from God or you don't know him as Lord and Savior, today is a day to repent and turn to him. Today is a day to confess you are a sinner in need of a savior. Believe in him as the one and only savior. Trust in him and commit to him. If you're not really making him Lord of your life, don't count on your commitment to Christ just being good enough. Now, what I mean by that, nobody's, nobody's saved by works. Nobody's saved by works. That's not what I'm saying. 
What I'm saying is our commitment to Jesus proved that we know him. Our commitment to make him Lord of our life, to trust him in the difficulty, to put him first, proves that we know him. And if we're trusting in some type of easy believism where I'm just going to trust Jesus one day a week, or I'm just going to trust him when it's easy, or I'm just going to trust him for, for, for certain American values, or I'm just going to, you know, I'm just going to, I'll commit to the church one day a week and, and I'll read my Bible a couple times a year. You're not really trusting the gospel. You don't really know Jesus. Jesus said in Luke 9, 23, anyone could come after me, but he or she must deny his or herself, take up their cross and follow. Jesus gives us a free gift of salvation, but it will cost us our life. We will sin, we'll backslide, we'll mess up. And if we truly know him, we'll repent and turn back to him. That's what I pray you do. As the praise team comes up, I'm going to pray here in just a moment to close the sermon. As the praise team comes up, the altars are open, and, and I'm going to invite our altar prayers, prayers to come up as well. You know, if God has laid anything in your heart and you want prayer, come up to the altars during this song. They'll be glad to pray with you. If you just want to pray by yourself, they're fine with that too. And, and sometimes I think we, you think when I say that, I'm just talking about Maybe, maybe a prayer to commit your life to Jesus or, or, or you're coming because of, of you've strayed from Jesus. Yeah, that too, but that's not only what, I'm, what we're talking about. Maybe God's laid something in your heart. Maybe you have a child or a grandchild that you just desperately want to pray for today. Maybe somebody in your family is going through cancer or a diagnosis or sickness, and you just want somebody to pray with you. Maybe your job is very, very difficult right now. It's hard to stay there, and you want someone to pray with you. Maybe you're dealing with depression or something else. Whatever it is, if you want prayer, come forward during this closing song. Let me pray, though. Lord Jesus, I pray that you'll take this scripture and apply it to each and every one of us. I thank you for your grace preserving a remnant, and in preserving the remnant, sending us a savior, Jesus, by whom we are saved. Lord God, help us not to judge you, but to trust in you. I pray this in Jesus' name, amen.